0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, 5G makes business sense.
0: I'm Wang Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. In the studio this morning is James Chai, a frequent guest at BFM who wears many hats, writer, researcher and political analyst. He's also, of course, a visiting fellow at ISIS Yusuf Ishaq Institute and a columnist for Malaysia Kini and Sinchu Daily. But today we introduce him As a non-fiction author of the book, Sang Kanchil, a tale of how ordinary Malaysians defied the odds. Now, thanks for being with us today, James. Now, it's a breakfast grill, so you're not going to be left off easily. But really, at the very onset, what was the catalyst that made you decide to write a book? I don't suppose it's money because publishing in Malaysia is not known uh, to make big money except for a few handful.
1: That's right. And I hope people know that, that uh, publishing is, you know, I get really little from it. So it has to be driven by passion. I wrote when I graduated in 2016, Xiaoning, uh, I wrote my first column at Malaysia Kini called Choosing to Return to Malaysia with Hope. At that time, I received my first uh, taste of what um, Malaysia Kini comments could be, right? <laughs> so people call me naive, having hope is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And you told me three words, right? Mm. Malaysia, no hope. And then two years later, as everyone knows, in 2018, that was a once in a generation change. But quickly after that, uh, there was this huge slide uh, of just changes uh, that you feel that when something is taken away from you, it probably hurts more than if you never had it at all.
0: Yes, you felt the taste of it.
1: That's right. So that disillusionment was very strong. And When I started, you know, thinking about what else is there to be hopeful, because a lot of my friends said, James, you're this Hopi, changey person. I mean, what is there to be hopeful for now, right? So I needed to give some kind of answer. And that was December 2021. Mm. That was, if you recall, that was one of the greatest floods in modern Malaysian history. Yeah. And that's where we realised that the government was very slow to come. But there was this group of people called the Guara Sahih Petaling Jaya devotees who organised one of the best rescue operations that we've seen. And and I, I think the book talks about how complex these operations can be. And I think what it uncovered is a truth that we've always known, Mm. which is you don't look for hope elsewhere. Hope was always within us, within ordinary people. So I wanted to bring uh, forth a certain concept that small actions have an impact in moving the needle. It doesn't move the rock, Mm. but moving the needle counts. And that's what this book is about.
0: And how did you find this? Because the book has seven stories within it it, which are all these stories of hope. How did you find these seven stories? Were they you know like was it you had a bucket list first or did they come to you? I'm just curious.
1: So I I did have a list of people that I wanted to speak to and all of them had to be symbols of a fabric in Malaysian society because I wanted to show something that is more holistic. Mm. But these must be ordinary people who are put in situations that are much larger than themselves. So these are like in the face of corrupt politicians, unjust governments, discrimination, natural disasters, war, that kind of bigger issues. And to see how ordinary people, once they are put in those situations, how would they react to it? And... What is it that we could learn through that process? I think one of the stories was uh, Auntie Bersi, which is the first yes. chapter, one of the most loved chapters. A chapter, very touching d- chapter. Given what my friends have told me. Retiree who decided, who was a teacher before, who decided that I want to attend this dangerous protest with only t-shirt, trousers and a flower in her hand. Yeah. Right? And, and how that experience of just one person moving a community to, to also act in a certain way. And of course, I mix it with some uh, academic insight because that's also my background on how that was also transformative in how eventually we overthrew government. Right? Okay.
0: I mean, it's a lovely story, but I, I'm curious to find out from you, James. Mm-hmm. Seven individuals said yes to you eventually. Otherwise, there would be no seven chapters. But who said no to you? How many people were on this bucket list of yours when you like drew up these tales of hope?
1: Yeah, so I think most of them actually said no. Oh. Because you see, right, the The natural dilemma is that if these people are ordinary who doesn't think so highly of themselves, why would they want to be featured? Even even Farming Razor was like, no, I really refuse to do it. Only after a few persuasion uh, that that was the case, right? Um, but there were a few people that I felt like I really wanted to interview, but I couldn't find access or like there wasn't enough of a touch point that could make a good story. I was very drawn by this concept of extreme altruism. In Mm. other words, why would a person put their lives at stake, even at the point of potentially dying, to do something that's uh, out of kindness, right? So there's this 2015 Sabah earthquake that happened at Kota Kinabalu. Yes. A group of mountain guides decided that I want to run into where the quake is to save people from there, and a few people actually died. I really wanted to write that story. But I, I I found so many touch points. I mean, like Facebook or like whatever people interviewed them. Not many people could recall enough details as to what happened.
0: And you couldn't track those individuals down? And I down. couldn't track them down. Okay, so if you know James is looking for them, <laughs> maybe there'll be a book part two. But yeah. you know that there are seven underdogs here. I would mm. call them that, right? Which were all... Like, like you say, reluctant to be featured. Mm. Some even said, Why do you want to write a story about me? It's going to be very boring. And I do believe that was, of course, Peter, Peter Kalang. Kalang. Right. But the seven of them Auntie Bursay, Dr. Serena Niknzainal, Noz Salwani Muhammad, Fami Reza, mm. uh, Gudwara Sahib PJ, and Marcus Yam, of the mm. seven, who was the hardest to track down and also to persuade to say yes?
1: Noz Sawani was the one person where after multiple rounds, the only way I could have written that story was to talk to people around her.
0: Yes, I noticed people because there's no the first-hand that's
1: right. uh, interviews with her in the that's book. That's right. and, and I think that came out from, you know, some degree of discomfort as well as, you know, also thinking that what she did wasn't a big deal.
0: She didn't think it, she was, didn't a big, think it was a big even deal. Even yes. until today, even yes. though her evidence was so crucial... Yeah. In terms of showing that there was tampering yeah. with the audit trail.
1: Yeah. And I think if you ask, because I did talk to her, is this that I didn't interview her. Mm. She said, I was just doing what I was supposed to do, right? And I think what would become clear in that chapter was that when people commit to acts like that, they didn't think of it as a transformative, once-in-a-lifetime, you know, like a movie-film moment, right? Mm but they think of it as part of what i'm already doing which is i do even the little things with integrity and when moment comes uh, the, the moment in life comes that that your character is tested mm. it becomes more natural for you to follow through because generally people do acts of altruism to prevent you know injurious acts of like being imposed on other people or like imposing your will from a more powerful person to a weaker person in society and how that is against a lot of the ordinary kindness that we, we have.
0: So it's at the end of the day, if you have a very strong moral compass and you know exactly what's right and wrong, so even when the odds are so stacked against you, which is clearly the case for her because she was just really a middle-level government auditor, uh, and she, she was quite remarkable because she secretly recorded, shared, stored, copied, handed and finally kept the evidence. Right. So this is a tale, right, for anyone in, like, in public service where you can make a difference, isn't it?
1: That's right. I, I think it is. No Sawani's story is still one of the greatest and most underrated stories that we had. Mm. It probably only made the news one or two days, at, you know, whenever she's in court and yes. so on. It's called the pencil case story, right? Because yeah. she actually put it into the a secret pen- recorder, yeah, very James recorder. Bond. <laughs> That's right. So, But what, what is also interesting about that, right, and I think it relates to what you said, is that people who carry out heroic acts heroes in our mind, right? They don't look like heroes. They in other words, wear if keeps. you look at her, that's right. She 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 was if you look at her today, you would miss her. Most of the time people think that she's just one of the journalists described as just another auntie that I know. <laughs> right? And that is very important because it means that we are so quick at judging people, right? It only takes like 0.1 seconds for us to make up our mind whether this person is charismatic enough uh, or having enough leadership qualities Mm. to actually lead me, when most of these people who made a difference, they have introverted traits that you can easily miss. So it's important, therefore, to also remind ourselves that they don't look the way uh, that we expect them to, especially in terms of civil service, right? I think what she has done, No Sawani was that she also created this um, surveillance, therefore, that politicians cannot just have their way so easily anymore. Yes, they right? can't bully them. That's right. You mm. cannot assume that they are not watching. You cannot assume that they will always agree with what you're doing. And, and that, I think, is how society is shaped through actions like that. When you ask her, she, she still wouldn't think it's a big deal. Even though in the book, like what you said, I've listed down, she didn't only record, she also followed through mm. all the way And strategically, when there was a change of government, she decided this was a time to bring this to the
0: fore. Yeah, very brave lady. Uh, I do want to talk about Fahmy Reza. Mm. I mean, he's clearly an interesting person. He's notorious for not giving any media interviews. We've tried. But his story is so interesting because he's raised by a single parent. He got Mm. a scholarship to study engineering at Vanderbilt University, but has since pursued a life of activism through his political artwork. Now, from your conversation with him, what motivates him to do so in what appears to be quite a lonely journey for him because he's declared he's he's not getting married, he's not having children, he just wants to pursue this path?
1: Yeah, I mean, initially, the main motivation was that uh, what is the origin story of Reza mm. that we always know? What shaped him the way that he did? And I, I thought the angle had to do with something that uh, there was certain... Uh, he was raised by an, a single mother and how he interpreted that absenteeism as freedom. And therefore, he was allowed to explore what he wanted. And I think when he went to university, there was a certain deepening in terms of how he thought about the world through punk, right? Mm. There's a lot of punk ethics that believe in egalitarianism, equality, anti-racism, that really affected how he did. And I think it was moments where his courage was uh, put to test where he was in the detention centre where he thought he was going to die and he didn't, those shaped his courage. And I think what this story tries to bring forth is that those were not innate. It was shaped through events. It's built. and, uh, And he persevered. In all of those moments, when threat were against him,
0: on the breakfast grill today is James Chai, author of Kan Chil, a tale of how ordinary Malaysians defied the odds. After the break, are there lessons in this book for politicians? BFM eighty nine point nine.
1: You are listening to the Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U Mobile. Five G makes business sense.
0: BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. In the hot seat this morning is James Chai, author of Sang Chill: a tale of how ordinary Malaysians defied the odds. Before the break, what was the inspiration for his book? James, let's talk about Fahmy. it's because there's more to say about him and I think Earlier on, we talked about what motivated him. The chapter, however, on him ends with the key takeaway that censorship laws rarely work because of this and effect, which he highlighted to you. But, you know, in Malaysia, we still have the Sedition Act, Communication and Multimedia Act, Film Censorship Act, and Printing, Presses and Publication Act. Now, this is all despite... Harapan's election manifesto committing to review and repeal these acts. And they even pledged to introduce a Freedom of Information Act. But when in power, why why are governments always so seemed to me, appear to be reluctant to allow for freedom of expression?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Streisand effect, right, at the heart of it comes from uh, the famous artist called Barbara Streisand. So yes. she's an EGOT, which means that she won Emmy, Grammy, uh, Oscar and Tony, right? So she was, uh, there was a group of environmental activists who wanted to um, push through their agenda in a different way. So what they did was they took photos of a certain uh, Malibu uh, beach site, right? And the idea is that if over time I can show through photos, which is the strongest evidence in court, the destruction that happened through time, mm. then I can hold some people accountable, right? One of the photos that they've taken was Baba Streisand's house. And initially, nobody actually went on this website that nobody went I to. I think six people six only, people. right? Of which two <laughs> were her that, lawyers, lawyers is it? That's right. <laughs> And nobody went to this website, but because she actually brought a case against this environmental group, therefore, up to, until today, there are millions of people, millions of people who went to the website. The heart of what that argument is, the Streisand effect, is that censorship doesn't work because by you bringing to the fore what that piece that you're trying to censor is, you draw more attention to it, which defeats the initial purpose, Mm. right? And I think Fami Reza, he's a very smart guy. He knows about um, the effect of the uh, the Streisand effect and therefore he was not afraid. He actually thinks it's probably beneficial. Sometimes he tells the police that, are you sure you want to come after this piece (laughs) of art? Because uh, you would make me even more famous than before. And, you know, if he doesn't, let's say if police doesn't do that, he actually gets to push it a bit more by having more protest art being brought to the fore. Yeah, more attention. That's right. So I think a lot of government, uh, naturally, they are very fearful of perception, right? And I think the reality these days is that with online media, it is true that you have to crack down on disinformation, which I think uh, is something new for a lot of governments to deal with. But I think that also meant that governments would be naturally more hesitant because they don't know what would happen if I just open it up. But I think what that story brings to fore is that there is always a negative consequence or an unintended consequence that comes with it, uh, and and being aware of it could actually deter um, certain things that you want to censor being, you know, ex- mm. exacerbated.
0: Okay, so one more story I want to highlight is Gudwara Sahib from PJ. Now, rainy season is upon us. Mm. And I think it's also timely to remember the terrible floods of December 2021, which you highlighted earlier. 50 people did. It required evacuation of 400,000 people, mm. 6.1 billion in financial losses, with some parts of Peninsular Malaysia under four meters of water. And I think we remember government responses on the ground were woefully inadequate. Some politicians weren't even in the country, and it was civil society that came to the rescue. So do you think it's a reminder that ordinary people can organise themselves when necessary? Yeah. And should governments be afraid of that?
1: (laughs) I I think it is this, right, in in Malaysia, whereby in in flood rescue operations, as well as maybe uh, education uh, and, and some social causes, the Malaysian private sector as well as civil society has always needed to fill in the gap because Mm. they felt like government did not do that adequately. And I think what has happened through the years is because this has been so common, which is like government coordination, generally with, you know, a larger organisation, probably it's harder to do, or like um, there are certain... Um, incentives that are not aligned, which means that you just don't act fast enough because Mm. there are certain things like you need an opening ceremony first, you because that's what happened. You need the the minister to
0: officiate. That's right, you need to cut ribbons and
1: so on, uh, which, you know, defeats the purpose. There are a lot of mindset shifts that has to go through. Um, But what I think it also illustrates is that a rescue operation, an extremely complex one, and, and I think I've highlighted this in a book about how to actually think about it in terms of economics, can also be carried out by groups of people like that if they follow a value system rather than following a particular leader, mm. right? So I think that also brings to fore this idea that you, ch- you don't have to be too reliant on a certain, almost like a... a charismatic leader at the top to actually change everything for you when things could be mobilised on the ground.
0: Yeah, I think that's reflected in one of the comments from in the chapter from one of the characters who said, we need to trust people. If we control everything from the base in GSPJ, nothing will move. So that's an important point. Mm. But James, the title of chapter nine, which is I think the the last chapter, What We Can Do, Universal Lessons to Make the Country Better, that title, is that your own personal lament about Malaysia?
1: It is... Key takeaways from every chapter. And I think I was very insistent on people not want, not going through this book and just feeling good about it and not knowing what can be done as mm. a tangible step. Right? So one of the things that I've mentioned, Xiaoning, was this concept of quiet anger, which is a very Southeast Asian, very Malaysian thing, which is to have anger towards the state of the situation is a good thing. You should harness it but you resist firmly but gently. And and that has been the mark of how Peter Kalang did it with the blockade against the mega dam. And that should be how the resistance movement uh, in the country against things that you you think should change to a more progressive uh, future uh, can be undertaken. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a lament because I see progress as really a continuous process. It's whether people, we decide, that it is the end of it and I'm not going to do anything more. Mm. I'm saying that those steps are achievable. We can still move the needle in in our ordinary ways.
0: Okay, and you know, James, we're one year into this unity government. So some people might have this quiet anger, right? Mm. Because they... They thought there were going to be changes. That there was going to be, you know, an uh, increase in the pace of progress. The economy would be better. Yeah. At The same time, we look at the ringgit it's all time low against the US dollar. Government debt is more than a trillion. Malaysians are underemployed. They have insufficient savings for retirement. So, is what should we do? Because you know, is this an in, in inevitable consequence of messy coalition mm-hmm. politics? Are we just too impatient?
1: I think. What we are going through now is a painful growth process from being single issue idealists to be to becoming more complicated reformists. Mm. That means it was it's no longer a simple change of government is the only thing that I'm going for because of corruption. There's a good and evil battle here, right? Yes. It's also about how do we take the slightly more complicated matrices, right? Of knowing that. There are policy considerations, there are costs and compromises. The harder things for us to actually relearn, because in the future, I don't think that we should decide based on good and evil anymore, because it changed so many times already, right? Yes. So it's, it's about the nuances of whether, let's say, you know, anyone who is inherited this system, I wouldn't envy them, like what you're talking about, right? It is a broken system there is some pain that has to go through that process to actually change it. And I think the real test of any government, right, is whether they will push through tough but necessary reforms and when they actually introduce it, whether they actually would U-turn from it. Because that's the greatest test of the character of that government, right? I think we will probably see it in in one or two years' time and that would be a good barometer of Mm -hmm. whether we are put to the right direction or not, right? And I think generally it's also recognising that Uh, you know, some philosophical debates that other countries have, we suddenly start to have it, which is do you want a big government that solves all your problems Mm. or do you want a small government whereby private sector has a very vibrant role to it, right? Closer to what the Western world is. I think those considerations we would start to have, it is a slightly more boring conversation, but it is, uh, I think, something that we are evolving to and, and I've always heard this, right, which is like pain is knowledge rushing in. Right? which means that if something feels a bit painful and you know it's in the right direction, uh, you're learning something about the country.
0: Okay, back to your book, James. If politicians read it, <laughs> what do you hope they will take away from it? You've got about a minute or so.
1: That they are no big deal, right? And I think in the past, Southeast Asia and Malaysia, we have deferred a lot of our powers to them. And the idea that I'm going, if it's not going to be Mate, it's going to save this country. I'm going to wait for another one who's going to save it. Oh, okay. Ismail Sabri doesn't look like he's much of a saviour. Let's wait for another one, right? Mm. I, I think uh, politicians should realise that, therefore, uh, it's not everything uh, that, that they, they think they are. And there is a humility to that process. That they play a very important role. They have for leverage. Sure. They they probably have some expertise in policy making. Some of them,
0: <laughs> some of them,
1: but they are not the end all to the country.
0: So in in essence, we are. We, we can make a difference every day That's that's the main argument of this book On that note thank you for your time on The Breakfast Grill was James Chai author of Sang Chil, A Tale of How Ordinary Malaysians Defy the Odds His books can be found in all good bookstores and also online Do read it I'm Wong Xiaoning, BFM 89.9
1: The BFM Breakfast Grill brought to you by U-Mobile 5G makes business sense